like to share with you today, um, as we're celebrating, we're celebrating working witness teams. Um, I want to celebrate with you this little topic here about keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. And uh, if you look in, it's a very familiar portion of scripture, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Let's, let's uh, look at it together today. Just to let you, maybe give you a little um, background to this verse, is that when Jesus rose from the dead, and prior to him actually going to the cross, he had already talked to the disciples about after he had risen from the dead, they were supposed to congregate. He wanted to meet them on a certain mountain near the Sea of Galilee. And so I want to talk to you about that mountain today. And that's, uh, that's what this is all about here. He says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then an unusual thing here, but some of them doubted. Now this is somewhere in that 40-day period. We're not sure, but from Jesus, when he rose from the dead, and then he ascended 40 days later up to heaven. Somewhere in that 40-day period, we have this event taking place. Some of them doubted. Interesting, isn't it? That even though they saw him, they doubted what had actually happened, that he rose from the dead. In the Greek, this word is actually not an unsettling doubt where, they, where they're lost, where they're, they're floundering in their faith. It's not like that at all. It's kind of like an uncertainty or a, a hesitancy where they're still not fully uh, situated in all that's happened. They're just not, things are happening so fast. He, uh, the, the person that they loved, that they were with for three and a half years, died and was crucified in a horrendous way and they, everything looked hopeless and suddenly he rose again and so their lives are kind of all cattywampus, if you will. And so some of them are, still aren't quite settled. But they, they get settled. Everything's going to be fine. Jesus came and he told his disciples I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations or all the peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, I've read that scripture many times, as I'm sure that you have as well, particularly in pastoral ministry. Of course, this is a primary reason for, for, for the church is to, uh, is to make disciples, is to reach new, new people. And what an opportune tool work and witness teams have been to spread the gospel and the ministry of Jesus Christ to all the nations, huh? Just an opportune tool. Was it 10,000 teams, I think I heard him say, since, uh, was it 1973, if, I, if I've got those dates correct? But the inspiration of this work and witness ministry goes all the way back, uh, really, to this colossal day right here that we just read about, um, this challenging day after Jesus rose from the dead. It was, it was sometime during, again, that 40-day period after, after Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus was preparing to ascend back to heaven, that he had commanded the disciples to meet him on a mountain. And scholars are pretty certain that, uh, you know, the mountain's not named in the scriptures, but scholars are pretty certain that the, the mountain that Jesus was talking about was a significant mountain right on the western shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and it was probably Mount Arbel. 
Mount Harbel is where they they were. And uh, this is a view of it uh, from from the Sea of Galilee. It's this it's this. Uh, this right here. Um, it's, um, it's, today it's a national park. People go up at the top of that mountain all the time now, you know. But uh, so it wasn't a hard place to get to, you know. It was, uh, there was a trail going up there. So yeah, Jesus apparently met with them there uh, some, but we don't know how often. But, but they're pretty sure this is where Jesus uh, had commanded the disciples to come. It was an interesting place because, uh, again, you can still visit that place today, uh, but you get a spectacular view of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 8 miles wide and 12 miles long. And so when you're on top of Mount Arbel, you can see everything. You see the entire lake. It's, it's, it's a lake. It's a freshwater lake. And they call it the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea, sea of Galilee. And uh, um, so the disciples, they've, they've been out there before. And they, they've, they've, seen the, they've seen the area. And uh, it's quite a spectacular. Uh, that's a view from one of the lower uh, ridges there. But they, when you go to the top, this is what you see. So that's actually, since this is on the west, this would be a view of the, of the northern shore northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this would be an interesting thing. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, there's Jesus during his 40-day period, there was, uh, he appeared to over 500 people. And so we're not sure uh, in the, exactly how many disciples were up there on top of Mount Arbel. It could have been 500. It could have been 100. We're not, not sure. But we know that Jesus, he appeared to at least 500 people during that 40-day day, day period. So possibly there was, there was a, a lot more than just the, uh, just the 11 disciples who were there. But Jesus appeared to them. And again, slowly all their doubts disappeared. Jesus had done 70% of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were very familiar with the territory around that, around that lake. And he had done 70% of his ministry there, particularly on the north side, um, the nor northern shore of it. They, they could see, again, from that location there on, on Mount Ar Arbel, the many familiar places where they had been with Jesus over the last three and a half years and, and the uh, amazing miracles that Jesus had done. They, uh, they probably, I, I can imagine, they started to re reminisce a little bit there. They could see where, they, uh, where Jesus uh, set Mary Magdalene free there in the, the village of Mag Magnola, which, which is just down here. They knew that Jesus had set Mary free. She was possessed by seven demons and and uh, had set her free and she became then part of his group of disciples and was one of the ladies, the very first ladies who was at the tomb when uh, Jesus rose, you know, the, she's the one that found that the tomb, tomb was empty. Um, they could see also there was a place here right probably down this area where four of them had been called to become fishers of men where they were called to uh, you know uh, to um, be the disciples of Christ they were challenged by him uh, to, uh, to follow him um, they also looked and they, they could see up here on the north was they could see where Jesus preached his longest sermon um, the Sermon on the Mount you know you know the in Beatitudes, where he, he preached that long message is actually, is actually like the constitution of the kingdom of God, if you will. Um, they could see there on the, uh, um, uh, on the opposite eastern shore, um, they could see where Jesus, uh, it, we can't have a real picture of it, but it's a little bit further over, 
over here where Jesus fed 5,000. There was, up here was the city of Capernaum, and here was Bethesda, here was, and um, they were just down this way. It's kind of a desolate place, the Bible says, and uh, it still is a desolate place. And Jesus was there, and he fed uh, 5,000 Jewish people. Uh, remember from what? Um, five loaves and two fish. Remember? And um, actually, they, they try to estimate it that probably there was closer to 20,000 people there because they only counted the men. And the men always had their wives and children with them. So there's probably closer to 20,000 would be a more accurate estimate for that great miracle. But they, I'm sure they, they were remembering that, that they, that they were there. And if you just looked a little further south, it'd be down, down here. Um, that was uh, getting into Gentile area. It was called the Decapolis. And they, they were getting into Gentile area there. And, and uh, Jesus was going down there. And if he went down, uh, if he, again, if he, if he oh, over here in the north was a place called Tyre and Sidon. That was fully Gentile. And he went up there to minister to some people. They weren't Jews, of course. They were, they were Gentiles. And they were, the disciples were kind of surprised at that. But they, they were surprised that, what are we doing over here in the Decapolis where there's just a bunch of Gentiles? Gentiles and and there was four thousand of them there, and Jesus fed them also. Remember, in the Book of Mark and Matthew talks about that. And I think the disciples had trouble with that. They had a little trouble with that. These Gentiles, what what are we doing here? Uh, they'd heard Jesus say to one lady that, "Hey, I came to Jesus said I came to minister to the Jewish people." And not so much the Gentiles now, but Jesus still was ministering to Gentiles. He'd healed his, his centurion's uh, servant, you remember? And, and um, uh, he, had, he had set free you know, this Gentile woman's daughter who was possessed by a demon. Um, but he fed probably, and they figure maybe closer to 18,000 Gentiles were fed in that one, in that feeding there. So all these memories, I'm sure, are coming back uh, to, the, to the disciples here. But, and they, they still, you know, they... Even though, oh, they remember the time too, I'm sure, that when they crossed the lake right here, Jesus said, we, we need to cross the lake. And they went to the other side to a place around called Kersey. And there was a man there that uh, was running around the cemetery naked. And he was filled with demons. And he, uh, he was... It was in a Gentile area because there was a bunch of pigs there. And, and Jesus asked the man's name and he said his name, remember, was Legion. And we don't know if there was six, a legion, was about 6,000 soldiers. We don't know if there were 6,000 demons in this man, but Jesus set him free. And uh, the herd of pigs then, well, of course, the demons asked to, to possess the pigs and they, they drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus got in the boat and they went back across. The only reason they went over there was for that man. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> One person was important enough for Jesus to make all the effort at finding, going over to. Wow. <laughs> they probably remembered too that it was, uh, it was there, right there, someplace out here where Jesus stopped the storm. They were out there. Jesus was a member. They were out there going across the lake and Jesus had fallen asleep. He was so tired and back of the boat and this storm came and Jesus must have really been tired because it didn't wake, wake him up. And remember, they woke him up and said, don't you care we're going to drown? And he, he got up and well, you remember what he did? He just calmed the storm and said, be still. 
be quiet. And instantly it stopped. Instantly the wind and the rain and the wind and, and waves calmed down and stopped. I also probably remember the time when uh, um, when uh, uh, Peter, they, during another storm, when they were by themselves trying to, trying to row across the lake and they were coming across, away from the 5,000 be, being fed. Jesus was up here in the mountains praying and, and he sent them across and all of a sudden a great storm started here. They were trying to get over here and they weren't making any headway and Jesus came walking on this water. You remember? He came walking on the water and here's Peter. He says, Lord, if it's really you, um, if it's you tell me to come. And, and Peter did and remember what happened? He walked for a while and the waves got too big for him. He started getting his eyes off of Christ and he started to sink. And Jesus reached out and got him. And I'm sure they were talking about that. And then they said, oh yeah, and Peter, you remember this too? Down here where you had to be restored, that's where Jesus uh, you know, restored you after you denied him three times. He, you know, he, he, he restored you back to ministry. I'm sure Peter is saying, good grief guys, you got to bring up all my faults, you know? I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they were just... But they, they had to be thinking about some of these things because life had changed so much for them. Um, I'm sure the disciples' minds were just racing with all these special memories of being with Jesus and then Jesus said something hard. It's right then he said something hard. And this is what he said. We, we read it, but I want us to look at it again. He read this. He said this, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations or all the peoples. That means Gentiles too. They really struggled with Gentiles. Even now, those 11 Jewish disciples really had a hard time with going to Gentiles. They had this prejudice against them. And he said, um, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Holy Spirit, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And, I, and to be sure of this, I am with you always into the end of the age. Amen. You see, this was, again, hard because these disciples were still pretty prejudiced against anyone who wasn't Jewish. All these special memories of Jesus, and here Jesus ruins it, you know, by, by, uh, by telling them that as you're going everywhere in the world, tell everyone about me and teach them to obey my commandments, which will indicate that they love me. This would be a slow lesson for these disciples to learn. This would be a really slow lesson. Jesus had healed Gentiles. He had fed up to 18,000 of them with, with bread and fish. And he was trying to, uh, to um, you know, to dull that prejudice that his disciples had. Because still in the book of Acts, on the 40th day when he was going to, He's, he was going to ascend up to heaven. And just before his ascension, this issue of hoarding the gospel, this issue of hoarding the gospel uh, was still on the plate for these disciples and uh, giving it to all people, including these Gentiles. It was a real roadblock in their mind. And in Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 6, to, uh, 6, to, uh, 6 to 11, um, you know, we, we read there that, well, let's go ahead and read it here. I'll, I think I got it up here for you. Yeah, it says, so when, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They're still concerned about that. that they're thinking the Messiah is just coming to take care of us, to take care of Israel. It's all about Israel, isn't it? 
And Jesus said, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people everywhere, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, the ends of the world. And I, I like this. I like this part here. It says that after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. I think I've got more of it here for you. Yeah. Um, and while they were watching, and they could no longer see him, and as they strained to see him rising in the heavens, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Wow. That's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? As we do what he said to do, as we keep the main thing the main thing, and that is keeping him the main person in our life, as well as fulfilling the, that his, his, his command to tell other people, to share, other, to share with other people about him. Ten days later after this, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those 120 disciples in Jerusalem in the upper room. The church was born, and Peter powerfully preached to fellow Jews who had gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. 3,000 people believed in one day. Wow. Over the next 10 years now, lots of things, lots of things. Over the next 10 years, lots of things happened in the church. The church grew in Jerusalem. It also got organized. Stephen was killed for his testimony. He was the first martyr. Persecution broke out and Christians were scattered over the region. Still, just mainly sharing about Christ with fellow Jews. Saul began to persecute the church. Saul was then converted and became Paul. And the church began moving all over the area then, but mostly still just preaching to Jews. And finally, after 10 years, after 10 years from this incident of being on, on the mountain, after 10 years, Peter had a vision from God one day that he was not to consider any person unworthy of hearing the gospel. That all people are made in God's image, not just Jews. Peter then preached to the house of Cornelius, who was a Roman military officer. Before, Peter wouldn't have gone in that house. Even though he was been following Christ, he would not have gone into that Gentile's house to tell him about Christ, but the Lord commanded him to do it. He wouldn't have been, and the Holy Spirit fell powerfully upon those Gentiles as, and they were saved from their sins. And it was then that a chunk of mental roadblock was chipped away from Peter's mind and he understood more fully what Jesus had commanded on Mount Arbel. <laughs> and then that Jesus intended everyone to hear the gospel. He did slip once. He, got, he kind of fell back into that prejudiced manner. Um, Paul talks about in the book of Galatians where he, uh, you know, he slipped once and started thinking about that Jews were more important than Gentiles. And Paul confronted him there in Galatians chapter 1. And uh, Peter repented. And as far as we know, he never slipped again, thinking that God loved one group of people more than another. Eventually, Peter found himself about 25 years later after that in a Roman, or in Rome, ministering among Gentiles and finally being crucified upside down by the Emperor Nero. Loved ones, this has been our calling ever since, almost 2,000 years ago, to tell everyone we can about the gospel and this new life in Jesus Christ and 
the need to believe, the need for them to believe and to escape the wrath of God's coming judgment, because that's why Jesus came, was to save us from the wrath of God's judgment. Now, maybe the question we can ask ourselves is this, is what is the gospel really all about? What is this message that we're supposed to bring to people, that we're supposed to convey to people, that as people watch us, they notice that there's something about, different about us because the Holy Spirit has written God's laws in our heart because we believe in who Jesus is. What is this message we're supposed to tell them? Well, the, the harsh opposition the first disciples faced when uh, holding to this gospel is really still with us today. That hasn't changed. Um, our culture still resists us. American culture still resists us. These, these uh, uh, principles, these or these, these, these steps of faith that a person must have in their life if they're going to be a Christian. And the, the first one, of course, is if you believe the gospel, it's, it means a, a complete surrender to who Jesus is. That to believe in Jesus, you have to believe in who He said He was uh, or is, and He's that He is the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. That he's this unique person that is, uh, is from heaven. That he's what the Bible calls the God-man. Uh, I should say theology calls, God, calls him the God-man. That uh, uh, he's, a, he's, he's unique. He's not like anybody else. And, and second of all, you have to believe in, in what he did. You have to believe that, he's, that he died on the cross. He died to pay for your sins. And that he also rose from the dead. Not just that he died, but that he also rose again. The gospel is not just half. It is it's two things. It's the cross and the empty tomb. But you have to believe both. You have to believe that he, he did rise from the dead for your eternal life. And, and lastly, gospel means an obedience to his commandments that, that he will be Lord of your life, that you're willing to endure hardship and face opposition from spiritual forces as well as even physical ones. It's still the cost of being the disciple. It's still the cost. It was the cost in the Bible. It was the cost of what, what Jesus told his disciples was the cost. And it's still the cost. It, is, it isn't easy, but he is with us. And he said, remember, even to the end of the age. <laughs> My friends, there is one claim that Jesus made that really gets under the skin of our culture. Well, actually all cultures. And, and uh, it got under the Roman culture big time. And it still gets under ours today. It's a really sore spot in our culture that's been really growing pretty big. Uh, and we see it really culminating now, but it started like maybe back in the 1980s. It's this issue that Jesus claimed to be the only way to the Father. It's this claim that he, be, he was the only way um, to, to his heavenly Father. He was the only way to eternal life. And remember, every culture has its own unique way to face death and what's beyond. The world has over 4,000 religions of mankind endeavoring to, to, uh, uh, to find heaven or to find quote-unquote God. There's, uh, there's those major ones like, you know, you know of. There's Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and New Age, you know, philosophies. And there's Islam and there's even the occult. And there's even Darwinian evolution these days that has actually become a religion because there is no proof of macroevolution. So you have to believe, <laughs> right? Our culture doesn't like being told it's wrong. Apologist Josh McDowell, who was a, who was a, a really a prominent apologist in my younger years in ministry, 
He said back in the 60s and 70s, he would argue on university campuses that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him. And, and uh, college kids, collegians, they'd stand up and they'd challenge him and they'd say this, prove that that's true. Prove it. Remember the day when Josh told us, we were listening to him in a lecture one day, he said, you know, this was some place in the 90s, he said, you know, things are changing. I go to college campuses now and it's not, kids don't stand up and say, prove this to me. Now they stand up and say, you have no right to say Jesus is the only way. There's a lot of ways to heaven. You have no right to say, you have no right to criticize somebody else's way to get to heaven. Jesus is just one way. <laughs> he said that was the big deal that was surfacing in the 80s and it's still here with us today. Very prominent today. But the gospel boldly asserts that there is no other name. Hmm? Acts chapter 4, there is no other name. Jesus' name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved. And that is not arrogance. That's just reality. It's kind of like on that old cowboy show, uh, Guns at Will Sonnet. No brag, just fact. Right? If you, know, if you know that old show. And you've heard me say it before, and you'll probably, you know, you'll probably, you know, if, I'm in the, if, if I happen to go to heaven before you, you'll probably think of it when you see me in the casket, that Jesus is not the best answer to life. He's the only answer that fits. He's the only one that fits the puzzle. Of the, the life demand has questions and he's the only one that has the answers really that fit. He's the only one who can meet the needs of our sinful souls and our dying bodies. He's the only one who has the answer for this continually wicked world. Since, and since he is God, he alone has revealed our needs and shown us that he alone is the way to meet those needs. And he is the embodiment of truth, which shows that there is another spiritual power that embodies lies and deceptions that's trying to change our mind, that's trying to trick us. And he stands alone as the author of life, which every other power seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And he alone wants to give us life. Well, there's one spiritual trick our culture as well as the enemy of our souls tries to play on us. And it's not necessarily to deny Jesus who he claims to be or, or but it's simply this. Don't go overboard on Jesus. It's okay that you believe in him but don't, don't go overboard on him. You can just add him into your life. And this is a really prominent thing that's happening in Christians' lives today. You just, Jesus, Jesus can kind of be an add-on, kind of like, a, kind of like a, an, an add-on job. You know, you have your main job, but then you have a little extra job to do that you get extra money. And I see Christians treating Jesus kind of like a, just kind of like a side job. You know, he's, he's kind of there, but he doesn't really affect how I, my money, he doesn't affect how I treat my spouse, he doesn't affect how I deal with my kids. He doesn't affect how I treat my neighbor. He doesn't really, I mean, not much. Maybe a little bit, but not much. Because he's just a side job. He's just there enough to pacify your conscience. But I'm going to tell you that if you don't know by now, if you haven't gotten this sense by now, that Jesus is saying he has to be up front and he has to be front and center, all this all-consuming every area of your life that he might 
be displayed, that he might display his lordship of goodness, his, his, his lordship of truth and love and power and wisdom. In other words, let me put it this way. <laughs> Jesus must be the main thing in a Christian's life. If he's not, you really can't call yourself a Christian. It truly is the main thing, and that's our message to the world, to other peoples, to no matter what your nationality is, that Jesus must be the main thing in your life. It, it's so easy to allow our lives to get muddled with lots of things and activities and misplaced priorities and what is the key to a victorious life that, that not only, you know, for the assurance of salvation in this life, but also in the life to come. It was a businessman by the name of Stephen Covey, and you probably have heard of him before. He died a few years ago, I think back in 2012, but he he used, uh, he used to say this. He says, remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And for us who believe and obey and follow Jesus and share the gospel, it's to remember not to let the main thing just become another thing in your life. Amen? Jesus must never become just one of the things in my life. No, he's the main thing. I hope he is in your life. Let's share him as often as we can. Amen? Amen. If he's not, I hope that you will repent and that you will make him the main thing. Let's pray. Father, today, if someone has realized that you aren't the main thing in their life, I pray that you will press them. You will press them, Lord, to the point. You will influence them. You will nudge them, Lord, firmly to repent and to do something about that. To uh, surrender themselves, to submit themselves to you, and to experience the fullness, the, the joy, the goodness of what being a Christian really is all about. And not just to play, Lord, this Christianity game. Lord, help us to make at least uh, one person this week. Help us to make someone aware of Jesus this week. Sometimes, Lord, we, we live in a country, I know, Father, we, I know it's so true for me. We live in a country where we think everybody knows about Jesus, but Father, help us to realize that someone every week, Lord, every week needs to hear about Jesus from us or at least be made aware of him. I pray, Lord, you will begin using us. Help us to, to have that hunger in our heart to share about Jesus, either, Lord, through just a simple phrase we say to somebody just to make them aware of God or, or just to bring a, a witness to them about who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Oh, Father, we pray again that Jesus will become more and more the main thing in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.